kids and child care workers leave the room. All right, well, uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 4, and uh, I do see some new faces this morning. If you're new with us, um, typically what we do is we just preach straight through books of the Bible. And so we've been preaching through Luke. We even did that last week. We didn't do anything, you know, a special passage for Easter. Um, We just kept moving right through Luke, and we're doing that today. We're going to begin in verse 14 here in a moment. But before we read that passage, it's going to be helpful. First, I give you a little bit of a a backdrop. Um, And so um, I'm I'm going to give you a little bit of a short Old Testament history lesson. And if Old Testament is your thing, uh, great, congratulations. You might enjoy this. If it's not, just hang in there. I'll do the best I can. Um, But so much of our understanding of what's going to take place in Luke chapter chapter 4 is dependent upon our understanding of of a large portion of the Old Testament. So, please remember me with me, and if you don't, it's fine. Um, like I said, it'll be a good history lesson for you. That after the death of King Solomon, that was David's son, the Jewish people were split into two kingdoms. Israel in the north, and then Judah in the south. And then for the next several hundred years, both kingdoms really struggled to stay faithful to God. The northern kingdom, was they had all bad kings. And they, um, they were, were just awfully unfaithful from start to finish. The southern kingdom was in and out of faithfulness. They did a little bit better. Um, but at the end of the day, um, they had adopted and worshipped the pagan gods of their neighbors. They were politically and religiously just corrupt. They oppressed the poor and needy, and they ignored and persecuted the prophets that God sent to them to get them back on track. And so they, as God's people, who were expected to show the world um, who God is and how much He loves them and what justice and righteousness and faithfulness look like, they really failed at that quite miserably. And because they did, and because they wouldn't listen to God's Uh, plea through the prophets, time after time after time, please turn, turn back, I love you, turn back, turn back, because they didn't listen, God judged them severely, and uh, this culminated in in both kingdoms being invaded by foreign armies, uh, namely the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they brought total destruction upon both kingdoms, the north and the south. Um, Those armies murdered men, women, and children indiscriminately. They took into captivity Um, many who survived, leaving only but the poorest of the poor in the land. And uh, they burned the temple in Jerusalem to the ground, and they took everything of value out of it. Now, one of those prophets, a guy named Isaiah, who predicted all of this destruction, tried to call the people back to God. Um, He also also predicted um, a a host of really good things that were going to happen after this destruction. He told them, hey, this destruction's coming, but then after, some really wonderful things are going to happen. And he said that the nation of Israel would eventually actually be a beacon of righteousness and justice to every other nation on earth. And he said that all the kings of the earth and every people group on the entire planet would eventually bring their wealth to Israel to bless them because Israel was going to be successful in playing this priestly role and facilitating Um, the the entire world coming to know and love and worship God. 
And so, um, you know, Isaiah predicted a lot, and you can read about that. You know, there's a, it is a huge book. Um, Isaiah is one of the largest uh, books in the Old Testament, and uh, there's, there's just a ton there. Um, but, but in brief, he predicted a complete reversal. He said, look, there's going to be complete destruction. There's going to be oppression by your enemies. But then, y'all, Israel, will become the preeminent nation on earth. So um, Isaiah died sometime around the year 700 B.C. And uh, by that time, the northern kingdom had already uh, been invaded by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom would fall about 100 years later to the Babylonians. And although the Jews in Babylon were released from captivity after 70 years, and they were allowed to return, things were just never quite the same. They, they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, um, but, it, but it wasn't as good as it was at the beginning. Temple worship wasn't as, as uh, vibrant as it was. And um, over the next 400 years, Israel was occupied by this revolving door of global superpowers. Uh, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Romans eventually. And um, so they, they just came in and they defiled the religious practices, the, the, the worship of the Jews. Um, sometimes they even outlawed uh, their ability um, to, to practice their religion. And um, much of the, the Jewish culture was diluted by all the influences of these other nations that were coming in. And so um, even though that happened, and the, the Jews were just, they were languishing under this oppression of foreign rule and invasive culture, um, the words of Isaiah were not forgotten. Isaiah 59.21 reads like this, and, and this is the Lord talking to Isaiah. It says, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What God is saying is that, look, um, I've told you that good things are going to happen. They will. And I'm not going to let anybody forget. You're going to remember. Your kids are going to remember. Your kids' kids are going to remember. And even though all this time is going to pass, you're going to remember and you're going to know my promises. After the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, um, like I said, public worship, it just wasn't ever the same. Um, sacrifices were still made, but people started to get together more locally in Israel and in Judah. And so these, um, these facilities, for lack of a better word, popped up all over the countryside, and they were called synagogues. And uh, the synagogue was this Jewish place of worship where um, people would get together and they would read the Old Testament and then someone would, would teach, you know, um, you've all heard the term rabbi, probably a Jewish teacher. And, uh, but the Jewish uh, synagogue also served as like the very center of, of a lot of things in Jewish life. It served um, as potentially a school for kids. Um, at, at times they would even host out-of-town guests at the synagogue and they would even celebrate like, you know, family celebrations, things like that at the synagogue. It was the very center of life. And all of these little communities all over Israel. But the primary reason that you had a synagogue was so that people could come and, um, and they could hear the words, the Old Testament, uh, read and taught. And so you had better believe that the words of Isaiah, the other prophets, and the rest of the Old Testament, that those words were being continually read year after year, decade after decade, century after century, in those synagogues locally for 400 years. 
at the same time that those promises are being read, God's people are just dying underneath the oppression and rule of these foreign pagan nations. So it would be really easy to sit back um, from our perspective and just say, look, you know, Israel, they are a has-been nation. They are a, a JV team playing and losing against varsity players. And, um, you know, all of their hopes and dreams are just delusions of grandeur. We could look back and scoff and we could say that, except for Jesus. And so now we get to read how Jesus starts to bring that to fruition, but in a way that was quite unexpected um, to the people of that time. So uh, we're going to read together in Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Okay, we're going to pause there for a moment. Um, scripture reading in the synagogue could be assigned to absolutely anyone. It wasn't just for the rabbi. Um, probably what's happening here is Jesus is simply taking part in a very normal worship service alongside people that he's known for his whole life. He's in his hometown. And it's likely that Jesus actually requested this, this passage, that it wasn't something that was just handed to him at, at random. But here's the thing. That passage is from Isaiah, and it's from chapter 61, and it's stuck right in the middle of this large section of text that is describing the future glory of Israel. And so faithful Jews in that day, they knew the Old Testament. They knew it. They knew it like the backs of their hands, which I thought was a funny phrase. I don't ever really study the back of my hands, but um, that they knew it extremely well. They even had like large portions of it memorized. And so when Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61, what they're hearing is, oh, like he's reading about our future glory, and boy, are we ready for that. And so emotions are starting to get stirred in this really positive way because they hate being under Roman rule. Um, the Romans had, um, had defiled the temple, and they were very, very upset about that, and uh, they, were ready to, they were ready to be out from underneath. And so um, these words that Jesus are, are reading are really music to their ears. And, um, and, and you know, it says that they, they marveled at the gracious words he was saying. They loved what he was saying. So um, it's possible that Luke has summarized the passage that Jesus read, um, as well as, the, as that brief sermon that followed. Because really all Jesus says was, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, 
But it could be that this is word for word. We don't really know exactly what was said. It could be that Luke is just trying to move the story along. Or it could be that Jesus is just, you know, one-line one sermon, he drops the mic, and he's, he's good to go, and that's it. Um, but either way, this is a super powerful moment. And um, it looks like things are going well, but all is not well if it doesn't end well. If we keep reading in verse 22, um, here's, uh, here's what it says. Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So it, it, there's, it's, probab it's possible that some of you have never heard this story before. This is the, this is the only gospel in which this story is recorded. Um, but what a crazy turn of events. Um, what in the world did Jesus say to get them so riled up? I mean, they went from all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words, very suddenly to they are trying to murder him. Well, um, I need to give you a little, more, little bit more Old Testament so you can understand what's happening here. Um, Elijah and Elisha were both prophets to the northern kingdom. And uh, as I said, the northern kingdom had terrible kings. Um, they forged idols, um, ordained priests to pagan gods. Um, we even know that they practiced child sacrifice and sexual immorality in their worship um, to those pagan gods, uh, specifically the Canaanite god Baal. And because of this, and to get them to repent... God caused it not to reign in that region for three and a half years. And of course, this, this created a, a huge famine. And so during that time, when Israel is demonstrating awful unfaithfulness, God judges them with a famine to get them to turn. And uh, Elijah is the one who kind of has the power here. Elijah has the ability to either pray to God to bring the rain back or to not. Um, God preserves Elijah but he doesn't preserve Elijah by sending him to someone in Israel. He sends Elijah to a Gentile, to someone who's not a Jew. And Elijah goes to this woman who is a widow, and he is preserved through that widow, and he, he prays for that widow and her son, and miracles are performed there, and he, he makes it through the famine by living with the Gentile. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, the blessing isn't necessarily for you. So by referencing um, this Old Testament story, he's saying, look, if, you are, if your heart is, in the not, is not in the right place, you might miss the blessing, and the blessing might actually go to Gentiles. And then um, Jesus tells one more story. He references Elisha. Elisha came after Elijah, another prophet, but he also performed this amazing miracle for a non-Jew, Naaman the Syrian, who had leprosy. Get this, he was, the, um, he was the commander of the Syrian army. 
And the Syrian army had recently invaded Israel. The Syrians were enemies of Israel. So Jesus is saying, look, if your heart's not in the right place, not only might you miss the blessing, God might give it to someone else as he has already done, and it could be your, your oppressors, your enemies. And so now you can see why this would start to make them extremely angry because they had been set up to think, yeah, this is great. We're, we're looking forward to being delivered from out from beneath Rome. And now Jesus is saying, uh-uh, nope, that may not be what happens. So uh, some of you probably remember the movie The Sandlot. And uh, for those of you who don't, it's about a, a ragtag bunch of um, boys who just, all they want to do is play baseball, and they've got this really dilapidated field. And uh, so that's, that's all they do. They, they, they play ball all the time. And these kids, you know, they don't have money. That's, this is really the only thing they have is like one ball and, and a bat. Well, there's a scene in the movie where they're, they're, you know, playing baseball and all these kids ride up on their bicycles. And all these kids are like um, super well off, fully uniformed, ready to play baseball. Um, you know, they're, they're official, legit team. And they come up and, you know, it's, you know, it's rags versus riches. And, and they're, they're insulting one another. And one of the, you know, they're saying things that are typical of junior high boys. Like, you know, you mix, what did he say? He said, you mix your Wheaties with your mama's toe jam. And the other guy's like, um, yeah, well, you bob for apples in the toilet and you like it. And they're trading back and forth these insults. And then at some point, Ham Porter, the, the round um, redhead kid that we all remember and love, he says, you play ball like a girl. And the music stops, you know. And everyone's just kind of like face fallen, and it's super awkward silence, and the other kid's incredibly insulted. And at that point, you know, Ham had crossed the line. If you're going to say anything and you say this, then the only thing we can do now is we have to settle it on the field. And that's what they do. They determine we're meeting at 12 o'clock tomorrow at our field, and we're going to settle this. We're going to play ball. Well, apparently in the 1960s, the most... Um, horrible, offensive thing you could say to, a, to a, an adolescent boy was, you play ball like a girl. Well, if you really want to offend a first century Jew, you tell him that you're worse and worse off than a Gentile. And so that's, that's what turns um, this into a very, very dangerous situation suddenly. Um, but, but I think there's a question here that we have to ask, um, because it really looks like Jesus is picking a fight, doesn't it? Um, or at least he's escalating something. And so we have to ask Jesus, why is it that he did this? Um, these people, aren't, aren't they trusting in the Scriptures? Aren't they here at the synagogue to worship and, and believe in what uh, God's promises are as they're laid out? But I want you to notice the hinge upon which everything turns here. And it's this, it's this uh, part of the verse. And they said to him, is not this Joseph's son? So they're marveling at what he's saying, but then they say, is not this Joseph's son? And it was this statement that elicited that harsh response from Jesus. Okay, and so we don't exactly know the tone of this exchange. We don't know if these folks were, were mocking Jesus or if they were just sincerely amazed that he was being able to, to, to say these things so eloquently. Um, and in fact, as I was reading um, about this passage, commentators disagree about this. Some think that, that they meant to disparage Jesus, and some think that they just meant to, um, just, they were just truly just shocked that this was, this was their guy. But here's what we do know. We know that most of the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, 
they were so familiar with him that they couldn't really see him for who he was. They loved his words, but this statement revealed that they were skeptical of his power. They had reasoned in their hearts, they had reasoned in their hearts that Jesus couldn't be all that special because after all, he's one of us. Isn't this Joseph's son? And so Jesus said to them, because he saw their heart, he saw what they're thinking, and this is how we know what's going on here based on what he said. He said, doubtless you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And that was a common saying in that day. But what's happening is he's saying that they're thinking, you're going to have to prove it to us. All those miracles that we hear about you doing everywhere else, you're going to have to do here also for your own flesh and blood. Physician, heal yourself, meaning bring that back to us, your people. And so um, we can get a little bit of insight looking at, at another gospel writer, Mark. He describes some time that Jesus spent in Nazareth, and this is what he says. This is Mark 6, 5. Talking about Jesus in Nazareth, and he could do no work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Again, they were so familiar with him, they would not be able to see his deity. They just knew him to be someone that was one of their own. So it was a stumbling block. Their familiarity was a stumbling block to him, to them. Okay, so supernaturally, um, Jesus escapes their attack. And I love how fantastically um, vague Luke is here. He says, They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And this is what it says. But passing through their midst, he went away. Um, what in the world does that mean? And literally, no one knows, okay? And so we're just going to keep reading. Um, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done, no harm, done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirit, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose, um, and, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching now in the synagogues of Judea, which is further south. Okay, so um, you probably noticed right off that uh, unlike the men in Nazareth, um, the demons have no problem recognizing Jesus for who he really is. 
um, you also probably picked up that he didn't want them exclaiming that fact. And, and here's why. Um, his fame, we're watching this happen in Luke 4, is growing, it's exploding extremely quickly. People all around the area are telling everyone they know about this person who can heal disease. Okay, So this is before modern medicine, right? Everybody and their brother has something wrong with them, and they know if I take this person to Jesus, he's going to lay hands on them, and Jesus can heal them. And so as you would imagine, this creates an incredible fervor. But here's, um, here's, this, here's why Jesus didn't want them, the demons to, to exclaim that he was the Son of God, or the Christ, or the Messiah. Because that meant something to the hearer of that day. They thought that the Christ would be someone, and we referenced this, would primarily be someone um, who, who would take them out from underneath Roman rule. And so it wasn't advantageous to Jesus for the demons to be feeding this narrative, this false frenzy of let's make Jesus king so that he can deliver us out from underneath Rome. They couldn't hear it yet. And so all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus telling not only the demons, but also his disciples and other people, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Wait until after. Because people needed to see what the Christ was really going to do first, which was die for sins and then become a conqueror later. So the, the actual mission of Jesus is, is really summed up in that Isaiah passage. And then we see it carried out. You see what Luke did here. He talked about bringing liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, and now he's doing that thing. He's freeing people from demons, and he's preaching all over the countryside to just normal people in those synagogues. Um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, you know, it's no surprise that the people of Capernaum, they wanted, to, they wanted Jesus to take up permanent residence. They, they tried to get him to stay, um, but Jesus is actually, he's going to spend three years traveling and teaching and performing miracles all over Israel. And we also were going to spend three years in Luke. I'm just kidding, we're not. Maybe, maybe six or eight months. Um, so just a, a handful of just kind of thoughts of, of application. The Bible tells us that Jesus is bringing the good news to the poor. And this doesn't mean only the financially poor. But actually what Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to bring the good news to the poor in spirit. In fact, Jesus' opening statement in his most famous sermon, the longest sermon that we have recorded, is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5. But the first thing he says in that sermon is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you can be poor in spirit um, in more ways than one. Um, you can be poor in spirit because you have serious health issues. You can be poor in spirit because um, you've been wounded or broken in the past, or maybe even presently, um, by another person. You can be poor in spirit because your entire life you have just been surviving financially, and you've gone without basic things. You can be poor in spirit because you're isolated or because you're lonely. You can be poor in spirit because you have vices that have wreaked havoc on your life and they've destroyed all that is really precious to you. 
You can be spirit because death of loved ones has been close to you. Or you can be poor in spirit because um, by God's grace, you've just come to realize that deep down you don't measure up. That you realize that God's standard is too high for your sinful heart that is insatiable. Um, And if that's you, if you're poor in spirit for any of those reasons, like those people in Jesus' day, then there's, there's good news for you. That's what the gospel is for. That's who the gospel is for. Um, Isaiah 59.20 says this, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Jesus, our Redeemer, came for those who are aware of and mourn their sin. And that's what the people in Nazareth were missing. They wanted the blessing, but they didn't want the turning in their own hearts. And by the way, Isaiah goes on to just talk about how that, that blessing is for, it's for the world. It's not just for Israel. That the Redeemer is for everyone who would turn from sin and come to Him. But if you're not poor in spirit, and just please let me respectfully say that, that you are in danger. If your health and your bank account and your public image are all in good standing, then it will be more difficult for you to see who Jesus is. And Jesus, he says that. He says it's more difficult for a rich man to go through the, uh, for, excuse me, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And it's because our comfort, our security prevents us often from seeing our true need. Just like those in Nazareth, um, you might you might like most of what Jesus says, um, but you might just think that he's another good guy like yourself. You might miss that he's holy and perfect because you're not really actually comparing your own heart to his standard. And look, we all fall short. There is not a person in this room that doesn't fall short of that standard. It's just that some of us realize it and we know it and we mourn it and then some of us are blind to it. And so when Jesus says that I've come to to bring sight to the blind, yes, he's talking about physically. Um, I'm going to heal people of of being blind. That happens in the Gospels. Um, But also it's helping people to see, yes, there's sin in my heart that is unaccounted for, that I can't do anything about that separates me from God. And that's a grace for any of us to be able to see that. And so it's, uh, it's possible for us, you know, here we are in the Bible Belt, um, just like those in Nazareth, to have become so familiar with Jesus. You know, we've been in and around church our whole lives. Um, and, and to become so comfortable with the stories of Easter and Christmas. And, and, and maybe we're at church every Sunday and we just know the stories of the Bible. But it's possible, just like those people in Nazareth, to miss the point altogether. It's possible that you can know these stories and you can know Jesus and be familiar with Him, but you don't actually know Him. He's not actually real to you and He doesn't actually have any bearing on your life. And so my, my question this morning is just, you know, can we evaluate and stop and think, okay, have I really trusted Jesus? Is He real to me? Have I turned from sin because I do want to please and love Him for the sacrifice that He made. And if that's you, then amazing. 
you and I are brothers and sisters, but if that's not you, and you just kind of, Jeremy says this a lot, and you just kind of been Jesus adjacent, then I'm begging you just to evaluate, stop and think, do I really know him? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 gives us the good news. It says this, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that is our good news. That's good news for any and everybody who is aware of the condition of their heart and wants to be right with God. So, um, finally, just, just one more thing. I, I know that many of us, um, we read the second part of this passage about the work um, of Jesus healing and casting out demons. And, uh, and we just can't help but ask if Jesus still does that, that kind of work today. Um, we read this, we see that it happened, we believe um, that Jesus is who he says he is. We trust the scripture is true and that he performed those miracles. And then we're asking, um, well, what about me today? Um, because there's sickness in this room. There's, there's, there's pain and suffering right now by some of you, um, either uh, you personally or people that you know and love. And... Uh, I can also say about people in this room that several of you have actually experienced that miraculous healing, that we know that God is alive and Jesus is on his throne and he does still work. And we could tell stories right now, this morning, of people who were healed of serious sin, excuse me, yes, sin, serious um, sickness. We could tell those stories. Um, and, and we could also tell stories of spiritual warfare um, I've, been in, I've been in some homes where those kinds of things were going on, where there was oppression, and uh, God's people got together and prayed, and that God was glorified in that. We can tell all those stories. We know that Jesus heals. We know that he can push away darkness, and we have praised God at his answer to prayers. But there are other stories also. There are some stories that we could tell, and probably just as many, about the times when Jesus did not heal. And in those times, um, what we found out is that Jesus was precious and near and good and sufficient and enough, even when healing didn't come. And so Jesus is under no obligation. He sits with all rule and authority and power. And so he, has, he doesn't owe us anything. We can ask him for healing, and we should. Um, if you are suffering, um, if there is uh, oppression in your life in some way, absolutely you need to be with God's people, sharing that struggle and praying together so that God might be glorified and the prayers of people might be answered. Amen, 100%. Yes, yes, yes. But we hold that with an open hand because God does not do our bidding. And if He decides just to be enough for us in the midst of our suffering, he is glorified by that as well. And we can tell those stories also. Um, we are not guaranteed perfect health. What we are guaranteed is God's glory and our greatest good. And so we can trust the character of our Savior that whatever, that, whatever, whatever happens, whatever He brings, that that's good and enough. And we look forward to perfect healing 
whenever Jesus returns at the resurrection and we live forever with him. So um, let's, uh, let's take a moment. I'd, I'd like to pray for us as we finish up. And, uh, and then I think Danny's going to come up and he's going to read for us and then we'll sing before we go. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I, I ask that you, would, um, that you would open up the Scriptures to us. I ask that you would help us to see who you are as we get further and further into Luke. May we not assume that we just we know exactly what you're going to do or what you're thinking, but may we instead look at this with fresh eyes, that we may see what bearing you have on our life, what it is that you bring and offer, and may we not want anything else other than that. Will you help us to want desperately whatever it is that you want in our lives? Will you help us to turn from sin you're going to help us to see how to be obedient in your teaching. You're going to help us to see how to, um, to not fall into religious cycles, but instead to have a fresh, living, life-giving relationship with you. Would you help us to do that? Would you renew that in us? And Jesus, would you help us to trust you that whatever it is that's in our life right now that's difficult, um, that we know that you cause all things to work together for good, Lord, there are people in this room who are suffering, and we do. We ask for healing. And we look forward to, the, to telling those stories about the, mir- the miracles that you perform. And yet we also look forward to just actually experiencing and knowing you and realizing that you are enough, because we know that we wouldn't actually trade it. Jesus, you are good and faithful, and we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.